As we get into today's episode, I just want to take a second and remind you that there's a ton of extra content available to the members of Film and Whiskey Nation who support us through our Patreon. Check us out on patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. On today's Film and Whiskey, I'm joined by a very special guest to break down the 10 best picture nominees at this year's Oscars and pair each movie up with its perfect whiskey. That's all ahead on Film and Whiskey. everybody welcome into the film and whiskey podcast i'm bob book and i am kind of sort of flying solo today luckily you don't just have to listen to me we do have a special guest today uh, but as we mentioned at the end of our bracket episodes not only are we taking some time off for the month of march uh, as we ramp up for season seven but brad just had a baby or rather it would be more appropriate to say that his wife had a baby and Brad is helping to welcome that baby into the world. So Brad's taking some uh, paternity leave right now. And that means that uh, as we talk about the Oscars, you get to listen to the more pompous half of Film and Whiskey wax poetic about his favorite time of year. And joining me to do that is one of our very favorite people, a guy who uh, drags me back down to earth every time we talk and is also probably more educated than me. So he's a he's a perfect balance and renders me obsolete. Zach Johnston from Uproxx. Zach, how are you today? I'm doing very well, and uh, I hope I could be half the man Brad is. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'll say it because he's not here. Being half the man Brad is is only about two foot six. So uh, that's, that's, that's all you got to be, man. Uh, well, maybe I'm three oh, times the man Brad Yeah, is there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are recording this on Wednesday night. This episode is going up Thursday morning in advance of the Oscars. So we're going to do as little editing as possible. No pressure, Zach, but uh, we can't screw up. We got to plow straight ahead through here. What Zach and I are doing is we're releasing this episode in conjunction with an article that's coming out on Uproxx under Zach's byline. And we're going to be looking at the 10 best picture nominees at this year's Oscars. And we're going to be pairing each one of them up with a whiskey. I'm super excited to do this. It, it kind of uh, goes off the Uproxx article we had a few weeks back where we just took 10 movies that we'd reviewed on the show. We're, we're uh, narrowing it down. We're honing our craft a little bit to talk specifically about this year's Best Picture nominees. Zach, had you seen all 10 of these before we got this idea? Um, I have, actually. Okay. I sort of, I had been through them. I thought I hadn't, but I, turns out I had. <laughs> So great like, story, Zach. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As a guy who watches tons of movies, the pre Oscar nominations season is always a little chaotic because there's always like 15, 20 movies that could be nominated. You always know that there's like five to seven that are locks. And then those last three, no one really knows what's going to happen. And so uh, like we're going to talk about movies like Triangle of Sadness and Women Talking. And I remember Women Talking came out in my area like the weekend before Oscar nominations hit. And so I just happened to get it in just under the wire before before they nominated it. Same. Uh, but man, it's really hard to keep up with some of these, especially in markets like you and me. Like, I don't live in New York. I don't live in L.A. And a lot of times these movies don't come out theatrically till like February. Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it's really hard to catch up. I would be really surprised, you know, if we did a film and whiskey nation poll, uh, if if most people have seen more than like five of these, like it's just an, it's another year where a lot of the indie movies uh, are represented here. There's not a ton of blockbusters. There's a few obvious blockbusters, but yes, not a yes. lot of movies that I would expect everyone has seen. No, and I even compared to how it was even five, ten years ago, much less 20, 30 years ago, all this stuff is on streaming now, but it's also, mm -hmm. it gets lost even there. I mean, try to find, you know, they like said women talking, you have to go and look for it. It's not like, you know, Top Gun, which is all over Apple TV and yeah. all over Paramount, you know, you can't miss it. Or even, I, I how many... How many people actually have All Quiet on the Western Front pop up on their Netflix page as something right. for them to watch, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's, so, you so know, that, it's, it's, a, it's a good it's a good point, because I remember when uh, Banshees of Inishirin hit 
HBO Max. It was just like on a random Tuesday or something, and it was right. immediately buried. And you know, as a as a movie guy, I knew Banshees of Inisherin was going to be a movie that was likely to be nominated for Best Picture. And then I got this news that oh, it's actually coming to HBO Max in like five days. And I was pumped. I was telling everybody like this really important movie is going to hit HBO Max. And then of course, like there's no banner on the top. There's nothing for you to like to draw your attention to it. It's almost like you have to know what to look for even when you're going into the platforms that are hosting these things. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's and it's, you know, it would, it would almost be easier if they were all just in a theater, even if it was, you know, like an art house theater and the AMC and mm-hmm. maybe a, a landmark, because at least you would know where to find them somewhere. <laughs> yeah, man. So what we're saying is we expect this article to get millions and millions of page views because, <laughs> because of the popularity of these movies. Uh, before we yes. jump into the Best Picture nominees, Zach, uh, are you sipping on anything tonight as we talk? I am. So I was thinking about uh, just how the sort of glamour of it all, because it's still got, I like that old Hollywood vibe. Um, and so I grabbed myself a Dalmore, or excuse me, mm. the Dalmore, uh, and the cigar malt. It's uh, one of my favorite just sort of easygoing uh, single malt pours. It's got a lovely sort of, you know, that caramel peppery nose to it. Yeah. And it, you know, it's, it's just one of those nice sippers that it's perfect for midweek, you know, yep. when you just want one good whiskey. <laughs> I'm sipping on some Doc's Winston's tonight. I'm trying their blenders cut. It's a five year bourbon. Nice. Uh, we just reviewed it on, I think our last bracket episode. So it's still sitting here next to my computer. And I was like, you know, I might as well polish that off because absolutely a, it's delicious. And B, they sponsored us this season. So when you give me money, yes. I will drink your whiskey numerous <laughs> times on air. Uh, let it be known, film and whiskey. Oh, must be nice. <laughs> no, but uh, Doc Swinson is a, it's a fantastic uh, bottler. They're getting some just really special stuff out there in, uh, yeah. out there in Washington. For sure. I really enjoy everything I've tried. All right, Zach. So as we get into the Oscar thing, you know, every year... When nominations come out, people talk about snubs and movies that uh, didn't get nominations that should have gotten nominations. When you think back on your movie watching year of 2022, like what movies that aren't that we aren't going to talk about today do you want to mention? What stood out to you? Um, I mean, I think the menu was mm. kind of snubbed uh, because of Triangle of Sadness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you know those films have similar themes. Also, it kind of felt like it just Ray Fiennes character. Ray, Ray Fiennes in the menu was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Like just how he didn't get a nomination is beyond me. And listen, I know how it works. You have, you know, they have to go out for the campaign and they have to put in for it. And it's a whole huge thing. And maybe he just didn't want to do it. Totally get that. <laughs> to me, that's still uh, one of his great performances that was overlooked. Yeah. Um, that was, I would say that's the big one for me. There's other little films that I really enjoyed. Um, I, I really got back into horror this year. I really like Fresh and Barbarian, but you know, that's never going to get anything from right. the Academy. Um, and I, again, fully aware. Uh, same thing with like Prey. I was kind of surprised Prey didn't at least get like a costume or a special effects. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed the fight scenes in that. I enjoyed, you know, the, the entire look of it. Yeah, for sure. It's, for me, really fantastic. Um, and then there were, you know, other little things that you kind of get surprised about, I guess, I would say, as in, I kind of liked Babylon because it was so crazy. <laughs> um, and I kind of felt like that should have fallen right into that narrow thing where it's Hollywood celebrating Hollywood. I know it got a couple side nominations that nobody cares about, but um, I don't know. It's kind of, I guess it was not Margot Robbie's year between uh, right. Right. That and her other uh, films she put out this year. I don't know. It sort of it wasn't like the most exciting year for like mainstream, mainstream mm-hmm. stuff outside of the obvious of Avatar and Top Gun. Because I don't think anyone thought everything everywhere all at once would be. No, no way. And that was the thing. Uh, I was I was listening to a podcast today and they were talking about how typically like the 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 film that would come in second place in best picture that's like a little too risky or a little too out there to win best picture will normally win the screenplay awards and this right, year right. it looks like everything everywhere all at once might win a screenplay award but it's also the lock for best picture at this point 
it just like it this is. is the kind of movie that you know it, it, like uh what's the what's the phrase like the uh jet not general consensus but uh general knowledge would tell you if you know your oscars history that this is not the kind of movie that wins that award exactly yeah, it would be it would, it's the Tarantino effect. He always mm-hmm. gets a screenplay, but never best picture. Yeah, the Daniels would get screenplay, but no way would get best picture. That being said, I do put a lot of weight behind the BAFTAs. There's a lot, a lot of continuity between those two awards, and I also put a lot of weight behind beautifully made war movies that Academy voters cannot help themselves but vote for. Right. So I could see that being an upset, um, but I don't. That's I. That's a you know very out there bet <laughs> that it would happen. Uh, I feel like McDonough's going to get the screenplay this year hmm. um, because that's the out sort of the outsider Tarantino choice. Mm-hmm. It's all bantery. It's the completely dialogue driven. You know, you could have you know it is a stage play just set on what three locations, two yeah. houses, and a pub. <laughs> yeah, and so to me, because it is so dialogue driven, I can see that. Yeah. Picking up that. Uh, but also, I don't know. This is another thing I've noticed. Like, Steven Spielberg never does interviews, and he did a whole late night oh, Colbert show. Man, he is out there campaigning hard right now. Right? So hard. And that makes a difference in mm-hmm. the reality of the voters. Yep. Um, same thing with Tom Cruise showing up, being on Kimmel, going to the Oscar parties, which he never, ever does. Yeah. That makes a difference too. So. You know, and those, they are icons yep. that people adore. And the Daniels are just straight up not. <laughs> like, I don't mean to be <laughs> blunt or, or And everyone loves Michelle Yeoh. Yeah. But, you know, I kind of feel like people really get their hopes up about her getting the Oscars. Like, I can see it going other ways. Yeah, for sure. They, it's the Oscars. They often go the sentimental route. Well, we'll get into all that. Uh, I want to I want to give a couple of my like I guess what do you want to call them honorable mention movies movies that did not make the Oscars cut. <laughs> when I look over my like best of in a best of the year list here, there's a few of them like, that Sonic I, Two, so, <laughs> Sonic Two, Electric Boogaloo. Uh, I mean, the movie that I keep referencing on this podcast like all year, I talked about Michael Bay's Ambulance, which was just oh yeah, just chaotic and one of the best movie theater <laughs> experiences. I saw so I saw uh, Ambulance. And the Indian movie RRR on the same day in the movie theater. And I have Ooh. never been as overwhelmed. Like, <laughs> like I walked out of the theater and I think my ears rang for a day and a half afterwards. Yeah. It was we were just looking for a fight for no reason. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to go out and fight a tiger. It was freaking incredible, man. So both of those right. movies are worth mentioning. Uh, you know, obviously, Brendan Fraser is up for The Whale. The Whale uh, is a movie directed by Darren Aronofsky, who I I really don't like any Darren Aronofsky movies. I just there's there's something about him as a director that has never done it for me. Uh, and I'm not here to bash anybody. Fair but enough. but I was surprised at you know, I thought the movie itself was a little corny. I'm not going to lie. But well, he's kind of like creepy uncle Soderbergh, right? <laughs> yeah, right. The, so the movie's based on a stage play, as is Women Talking, and both of those films, I really waited until the last minute to see because I could tell they they both just seemed like they were going to be downers and they felt like Oscar bait. They felt like they were going to be super didactic yeah. and like I was going to sit in the theater and roll my eyes at how hard these people were trying to win an Oscar. And I have to say with <laughs> both of those movies, what really struck me was how entertaining they were. Like they they told heavy stories, but they knew when to use humor. There were some big laughs in my theater for both women talking and the whale at very specific moments. And I like if nothing else for both of those movies, I'm glad to see screenplay nominations because I thought that they were scripted just beautifully. For sure. Absolutely. All right, Especially man. women talking. That movie kind of blew me away. It freaking it. blew. And no one's talking about it. Like, I, yeah. I can't believe it. It's uh, when you look on Gold Derby, which is a website that I use to kind of track the odds of what's, you know, what the experts are saying is going to win. They have women talking as the 10th place finisher right now in best picture. It just never That's seemed ridiculous. to get any traction. I thought they held it a little too long. They really didn't release it publicly until right before nominations came out. And I, I, I just I don't know if it was a lack of campaigning effort or funding or what, but I was surprised to even see it sneak into the best picture race, to be honest with you, because 
Like literally nobody was talking about it. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of, I remember seeing the trailer like, God, nine months ago, six months mm-hmm. ago, not hearing another thing about it <laughs> until the nominations. All right. Well, on that note, I think we should just jump in here. And what we're going to do is we're going to use these gold derby odds to inform how we break down our, our 10 nominees here. We'll start at the bottom with the movie Women Talking. And uh, what I wrote about Women Talking was essentially this. I would not have expected this movie to be as entertaining as it is. It's a movie that really catches you off guard. Uh, there's a love story at the center of it. And it's I mean, it's a heartbreaking movie, but it's not a downer. And I think that's the thing that really shocked me about this movie. It uh, it told a complete narrative arc. I thought it asked some really beautiful ethical and theological questions. You know, if you listen to our podcast, you know that movies like Life of Pi are among my favorite movies because they ask these questions and they don't offer easy answers. And this movie does the same thing. And when I think about women talking and what I could pair that movie with whiskey wise, I went with a tried and true film and whiskey classic going all the way back to, I think, season one. It's the Glenn Moore and G. Quinta Rubin. If uh, there, Dr. Bill. <laughs> if there is one whiskey that people continually ask us about, it's the Quinta Rubin because we've I, listen. I, you know, I have no idea what kind of ROI uh, Glenn Morangy is getting off of our podcast here, but uh, they have invested zero dollars and they have gotten at least a hundred bottle sales just for me telling people about it, like word of mouth wise, because it's like a 50, I think it's up to about $57 now in my area. And it's still a steal. It's a 14 year yes. single malt. It is like one of the most beautifully uh, finished scotches that we've ever had. It is a perfect entryway into the world of single malt Highland scotch. If you've never been a scotch person, I always, always recommend the Quinta Rubin. And so I think that both Women Talking and the Quinta Rubin are more than meets the eye. You know, I, I didn't expect much from Women Talking going in, and I was really pleasantly surprised. And I think Quinta Rubin really fits that bill as well. Absolutely. I would. Just to add to the the Glen Morantia of it all, I would argue one of the best port finishes that you can actually afford and get that gives you an exact idea of what that means without going overboard or getting too musty. It's so well attenuated mm. that you're just like, oh, this is what they mean by port finish. This yeah. is something special that is extra um, and clearly so. Mm-hmm. All right, Zach, what's your uh, what's your first movie to break down here? So going off our gold derby list, it's uh, the menu. Uh, sorry, I mean Triangle of Sadness. <laughs> <laughs> so I did enjoy Triangle of Sadness because it did go in a direction that I'm not going to spoil here. Uh, because, again, I don't know how many people have actually seen this movie. Um, it went in a direction I did not expect mm-hmm. and it was actually kind of refreshing. And I really got into it in the back half. Uh, the first half I found kind of derivative. Uh, that's why I don't think it's really going to win anything. Yeah. Uh, that said, I mean, it was, there were funny moments. Don't get me wrong. I, I was giggling when I was supposed to be giggling and, you know, uh, but because of the sort of, you know, parasite of it all, I feel like this is that nomination yeah. slot for that. Um, and it's always about class, right? And so it's, you know, I think anybody who watched the trailer knows it's about the uber elite, the rich. Uh, and, you know, the people who have to work for them, unfortunately. And then the film goes in a very different direction. Uh, focusing on what people know from the trailer and the general thrust of, you know, rich versus poor. Mm-hmm. And it being such an elitist film, I had to go with the most elitist bottle of whiskey <laughs> I could think of. So I'm going with Pappy Van Winkle, 23 Oh, I love it. Oh, I love it. Specifically because that is my least favorite Pappy, too. So it is like... It is what those f**ks on that uh, ship would be demanding to drink. <laughs> so you should pour a glass of that if you're going to watch this movie. So I was actually – I'm so glad to hear you say that. We And we have not revealed our picks for this article to each other at all yet. So I'm, I'm literally hearing your picks for the first time here. I was going to say I was so happy that Triangle of Sadness ended up on your list because it was <laughs> – of the 10 movies, it was the only one that I can say I really didn't like. Um, I, yeah. I thought it was entirely too long. It was at least a half oh, yeah. hour too long. It's a movie yeah, that's yes. split into three acts and only two of the acts I feel like really actually are pertinent to the plot. Like the first kind of prologue act 
really has no bearing on the rest of the plot. It sets up two characters, but um, I don't really know that it adds very much to the theme of the movie. And the thing I, it's very flawed. The thing with this movie is, you know, a few years ago, I feel like there was really kind of a groundswell of people pushing back on specifically movies that were being made by Disney and how, uh, you know, there was a perception of the way that they were portraying quote unquote wokeness. Right. And Brad and I never talk about wokeness on this podcast. I lean more left. Brad leans more right. But I, th- I felt like there were a couple films in a row that were released by Disney that uh, there was there were characters and there were thematic developments in those movies that weren't earned. And it felt like they were really trying to check boxes. Yes. And I think that people studios have taken note of that now. But what they've pivoted to is taking that really simplistic uh, understanding of diversity and instead, they've made a really simplistic theme, which is just like rich people bad. Yep. And so yep. like we get movies this past year, like Glass Onion, which I really liked, and like The Menu, which I liked quite a bit, and and like Triangle of Sadness. But I think people are are starting to hit their limit with these kind of movies, even if we all agree with the core premise of the movie. And even if we really do like seeing arrogant and pompous rich people meet their downfall, this right. movie of those three, I thought was the most simplistic and reductionistic and like it it just I don't know, it it beat its principle into your head and it beat you over the top of the head, I'll say, for two hours and forty minutes without letting up. And I don't know if if Academy members were just kind of like bludgeoned into liking this movie or not, but it, it didn't do it for me, man. Again, I, I almost want to say it's just the parasite slot as yeah. in every everything everywhere all at once is the superhero slot you know like i it sounds very basic in mm-hmm. terms but it kind of is that where uh also if you do watch triangle sentence i would argue you can skip the first hour mm. and just start when uh things go awry yeah when people um, start vomiting that's where you need to start the movie exactly um <laughs> and that being said the reason I pick the most elusive pappy is that that's what those rich ass would be demanding. Exactly. And it just felt right. Yep. <laughs> I feel it. All right. My next nice. pick, uh, which is listed currently as uh, Avatar The Way of Water at number eight. I loved Avatar The Way of Water. And I only kind of liked Avatar. James Cameron is back, baby. He's freaking <laughs> back. And I'll tell you what, I went to see the re-release of Titanic in the theaters a couple weeks ago and was once again reminded that that is truly one of the great films to ever come out of Hollywood. It is a monumental achievement. And when I think back on The Way of Water, which I've seen twice now, it is much closer to being Titanic than it is to being the first Avatar. There is there's a level of storytelling there. There's uh, really rich thematic developments. I feel like every character is finally fully fleshed out the new characters that are introduced i think are really great additions to this world of pandora and uh i mean i gotta say man cameron does this thing with every one of his sequels where he takes the source material of the first film and he says okay but what if we make them a family now what if we introduce a kid and it never fails he does it with aliens he does it with t2 and he's doing it here with avatar and the introduction of kids and familial responsibility and the sort of like, I don't know, the uh, the weight of parenthood. I feel like I really made Jake Sully a better character. I thought that oh, the yeah. choice to end the movie with the scene that he does, which is like a very quiet, uh, meditative kind of like recollection. It, it's kind of a really heartbreaking ending to the movie. And I thought it was just one of the more poetic things I've seen from Cameron in his whole career. I really loved The Way of Water. Uh, unfortunately I went as simplistic as possible with this pairing and I wanted something kind of aquatic to, to match it up with. Uh, now there is an aquatic themed whiskey out there that is aged on the high seas. Uh, but you've heard Brad and I talk about that before and it's not one of our favorite whiskeys out there. So I went with my second pick for aquatic themed whiskeys and I went with barrel seagrass. Brad's favorite whiskey of all time, the only whiskey to ever achieve a 50 out of 50 from either of us in the history of the wow. show. It is just a beautifully complex rye, and it pairs up pretty perfectly with The Way of Water. 
Yeah, I mean, this is one of my favorite whiskeys as well. It's just so beautifully done. I mean, what the team over at Barrel are doing is just kind of like Doc Swinson we were talking about earlier. They're just doing wonderful work. And the fact that it's kind of a globalish whiskey as well. So it kind of pairs with Avatar that way in that, you know, Kentucky, Indiana, and Canada is all in there. Yep. Um, you have Martinique rum barrels and Madeira from Italy and apricot brandy barrels. You know, it's like all this different stuff coming together to create a beautiful pour of whiskey. Yeah, for sure. All right, Zach, you're up, man. All right, let me uh, – let's see. So that takes me to something that I – like I said before, might be the, the sleeper win. Um, just because I believe the power of the BAFTAs, but all quiet on the Western front. And in all honesty, this was actually one of my favorite films of the year. Hmm. Like top three for sure. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the book. It has one of my favorite stories of all time in the publishing of it. I'll tell it very quickly because it's a quick story, but it's proof of the power of a human translator in translating from one language to another, in that the name of this book is Nicholas and the Vestin, like there's nothing new in the West. But the translator didn't literally translate it because that wouldn't have the same meaning. He went from Nicholas and the Vestin to All Quiet on the Western Front, which is the power of truly beautiful arts in translation. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're an English speaker, there's nothing new in the West. Sounds stupid. <laughs> All quiet on the Western Front. It does not. Right. It sounds poetic. Uh, that aside, it's such a beautiful film to look at. I mean, the scene when they're standing outside the farm in the snow and it's quiet, but you can almost hear the snowflakes falling and you hear, you know, the geese and the pigs and everything inside the farm. And it's just so beautifully put together as a film uh, that you kind of get transported in a way uh, in the quiet moments. It's a very loud film. There's, you know, massive amounts of gore and violence, of course, because it's about trench warfare. But I think why the film is so good is it has that balance of both. It can be quiet and beautiful and, you know, tragic and funny, and it can be loud and bombastic and horrifying and harrowing and bloody. Um, and so for me, it just hit every moment of that film going experience for me. On top of which, after all that, the story is also great. It's a classic for a reason. So I didn't go with a classic whiskey. I went with a German whiskey. Um, oh, all right. So this is sort of like my ringer outside sort of curveball. But uh, for your fans, I lived in Berlin for 14 years. I basically lived in Europe for 20 I really got into German rice, German whiskeys. There's a lot of very interesting things going on in Germany right now in the whiskey scene. Of course, a lot don't get it o- get over here. But back in 2020, the number one whiskey in the world, according to the IWSC, the World Spirits Com- International World Spirits Competition, which is like the Oscars of uh, spirits competitions, named this whiskey the best whiskey in the world. And that's uh, the Westfalian 2012 six-year-old single malt. That's a peated German single malt. Wow. And so this whiskey is is 100% delicious. I mean, I was lucky enough two years ago. I still lived in Germany. I was able to get my hands on some. And the nose has this sort of um, malty vanilla chocolatey, sort of like a whopper sense to it. Hmm. You know, those like ball, like. Yeah. Malted milk malted balls. balls. Yeah, yeah. 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 Malted milk balls. Yeah. Um, with sort of like a floral vanilla and marzipan and like freshly grilled pancakes with, you know, floral honey and old leather and, you know, dried peacoat orange tea <laughs> and just, and then the, the peatiness is like layered in just so beautifully that you kind of, it surprises you, mm-hmm. but is part of the overall ecosystem of the whiskey. Like it all makes sense. It's sort of like, you've lit those tea leaves on fire or you've, you know, you've, you've lit the malt balls on fire. And it's just sort of, it's just a beautiful whiskey. Like I can see why they named it the best whiskey in the world back in 2020. Um, it's extremely hard to get your hands on here. You can get it. It's just really expensive. Again, sorry, I have expensive picks, <laughs> but, uh, Westfalen, Westfalen, uh, they do a whole bunch of stuff. They do a great rye. They do a great corn whiskey. They do a lot of great single malts as well. Of course, obviously, uh, peated and unpeated. And it's just one of those things where it's like 
hardcore whiskey nerds making whiskey in Germany and doing a really good job. Well, listen, I'm not going to let you come on my show and tease me with this whiskey that I've never tried before. So I'll be <laughs> expecting my sample in the mail here in the next few days. <laughs> I will do my best to find us a bottle. <laughs> All right. We both have three picks left. I think this is a good place for us to hit pause. We got to get to a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll finish out our nominees. All right. I'm back with Zach Johnson. We're walking through the top 10 movies of the year, according to the Academy. We're talking about the best picture nominees. And we're looking at a movie that I freaking loved that I really did not expect to like at all. And that is the movie Elvis, a smash success at the box office. I remember seeing the uh, the trailer to this movie narrated by Tom Hanks uh, as some sort of Dutch uh, foghorn leghorn. I don't understand exactly <laughs> what that accent is, but in the context of the film, it works. And the reason that it works is that this is a film directed by Baz Luhrmann. And if you're not familiar with Baz Luhrmann, uh, if you've ever seen Moulin Rouge, if you've ever seen the 1996 Romeo plus Juliet movie, uh, if you've uh, for some reason watched his movie Australia, which I do not recommend, <laughs> or if you've seen the Leonardo DiCaprio, The Great Gatsby, then you have an idea of Baz Luhrmann's filming style. It is uh, frenetic. It is kinetic. It is disorienting. And it is designed to be as opulent and over the top and uh, maximalistic as possible. And what better oh, yeah, subject buddy. matter for a filmmaker like that than Elvis Presley, a person who seems larger than life, who's and like if we're being honest here, whose life story we're really not that interested in as consumers. We want the Elvis mythology. And what I think is so brilliant about this movie is that it has almost no interest in being a biopic, quote unquote. It doesn't care if the story that it's telling is true or false. It doesn't care if most of it is the legend and not the facts, because as we learn from the movies, when the legend becomes facts, you print the legend. That's what Baz Luhrmann is doing here. Uh, when Brad and I were in seminary and in college, you know, we studied uh, biblical studies and we learned a lot about what's called form criticism which is where you look at the genre of the text that you're reading and you talk about how the genre itself informs how you're supposed to read that text. Uh, that's a pretty simplistic way of explaining it. But what Baz Luhrmann does in this movie is he takes the form of a biopic and he takes all of the tools of cinema to make something that is so much more than a biopic. It's a movie that comments on myth-making and myth-building at the same time that it is totally leaning into that myth-making and myth-building. It was just such an immersive, impressive experience. It was freaking bananas. I loved every second of it. And for a movie like that, I got to pair it up with something as uh, grotesque as Elvis's appetite itself, <laughs> as over-the-top. Uh, Elvis's favorite sandwich, very famously, was a grilled peanut butter, banana, and bacon sandwich. And while I couldn't find a whiskey that had all of those flavors for me, one that came very close was Jack Daniel's Triple Mash, which is one that we just did on the podcast this past season. This is a new-ish release from Jack Daniel's. It's coming in those uh, 700 ml bottles, not 750s, which was a, a bit of a controversy for a little bit there. But it has all those classic Jack Daniel's notes that we got on, you know, the baseline offering. Lots of banana on Jack Daniel's. I never see a lot of people mention it, but I always get banana on Jack Daniel's. And then there's this beautiful peanut butter uh, and and maple. It just it tastes like a stack of pancakes covered in maple syrup and peanut butter. And it is for $40, I think, one of the best values out there. So Elvis is getting paired up with Jack Daniel's Triple Mash. Yeah, I love this movie. I think I've watched it three times. <laughs> like, I saw it in the cinema and I've watched it twice since on HBO Max. Like it's almost like comfort food. Yeah. You know, like a, I guess like a peanut butter, banana and bacon sandwich. Um, just, yeah, I agree with you 100%. Like Baz Luhrmann found his perfect muse for yep. gaudiness and ridiculousness and his editing style and I don't care about Austin Butler's accent at all. The kid hit it out of the park, like just unreal. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, I think uh, a plus a plus on the pick in the movie. <laughs> Uh, before Brad had his child and had to, you know, dip out of this recording and we had to sub Zach in here, Elvis was one of the movies that Brad was going to be reviewing. 
and uh, he he had to watch it still. I told him, look, look, man, I tried to convince you to go see it in the theater. It's not going to be as good on HBO Max. And he's like, dude, it shouldn't matter if it's a good movie. I should like it anyway. Uh, Brad G, not a fan of the movie Elvis. And I know this because we share an HBO Max account. And uh. I, I saw that he made it about 20 minutes in and stopped. And the next day he watched about another half hour and he finally made it to about the halfway mark. And now that he doesn't have to record this episode, I can tell you with 100% certainty that he will never be finishing this film. So <laughs> it's nice to have Zach here because that means that we both are fans of Elvis. I know. I, a lot of people complained about certain aspects of it. It's like, it's Baz Luhrmann, man. It's fantasy. Right. It's fan fiction, you know, and even, even like, I thought Tom Hanks was brilliant in it because how else is a Dutch carny wannabe Kentucky yeah. Colonel supposed to sound? hundred <laughs> percent. He's like, it's so like he was a weirdo. Yeah. Like, <laughs> now, you know, you uh, talked about, uh, you know, some movies being slotted in like the parasite slot or the superhero slot. Yeah. I think this movie is being slotted into, you know, the Bohemian Rhapsody slot from a couple of years yes. ago. And, and it's a trillion times better. And that's the thing. I've been trying to prep my defense of this movie where I hated Bohemian Rhapsody. And I think ultimately what it comes down to is this. Neither of these movies is interested in the truth, but only one of these movies feels like it has intentionality behind it and is like yes. actually the vision of a visionary filmmaker. Bohemian Rhapsody that's, was all over yeah. the place, man. But also Bohemian Rhapsody. Rhapsody felt like a betrayal because it was so heavily influenced by Brian May mm. and the former band members into their narrative of someone else's life who they didn't really get on with that well yeah, and didn't like that much. And that was bullshit. On top of which, Rami Malek looked like he was always like a scared rabbit who just got like shocked by a <laughs> cattle prod in every scene. Listen, man, I and, can't believe that like in the year of our Lord – 2018 or whenever that movie came out that the solution was just let's put big fake teeth in his mouth and it'll and he'll look like freddie yeah. mercury it was the yeah. most ridiculous looking thing i've ever seen and it was i mean i've nothing against him as an actor he can obviously do great work it was all on the director and the producer of that film for what was put up on that screen you know he was doing his job and what he was told and you know he brought what he brought but that is one of those that up there with crash of ridiculousness <laughs> that that got an award. Like just come on. especially especially they fired the director and the director's next film was Rocket Man, which again, full on fantasy, yeah. fan fiction. But ten times better. And ten times again, that's a movie I watch probably once a year, maybe it's a type of movie you can throw on on a Sunday while you're folding laundry, you know? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Zach, what's your next pick here? So I'm going with another uh, heavy hitter that probably five people have seen, and that is Tar. Tar. Um, I initially wanted to see this because it was uh, Kate Blanchett, uh, because she is the goat. I mean, is there? Oh my gosh! For sure, better. <laughs> um, but also, it was filmed in Berlin. Like I said before, I used to live in Berlin. Blah blah blah. I know. Uh, also. Another little thing about me, I first two years of college, I was a music major. I was going to be a concert pianist. I had been playing since I was six. I was homeschooled so I could practice piano six hours a day. Like So movies like this always get my attention. Mm -hmm. um, again, without spoiling too much of the movie, you know, this is very much of its time, I think, to its detriment in that it's about uh, you know, looking back at artists and asking whether the art is ever worth it if the person making the art is a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I'm not going to stop watching The Shining because Kubrick was a piece of shit to Jack and, you know, his actors. It's a very 2022 movie. Yeah. That won't be timeless hmm. because of that. Uh, I do think Kate Blanchett is phenomenal in it, of mm -hmm. course. I think the directing is excellent. It looks great. Uh, you know, it's got some interesting ideas. I think it's an important conversation, but as with anything, a conversation that is pertinent to a year doesn't last. How many times have you talked about Kramer versus Kramer? It, uh, you know, those conversations pass and we forget the movies that were part of the conversation because we hopefully move on and better ourselves. Mm. That being said, 
I picked a whiskey and it's abrasive and overdone and uh, let's just say an acquired taste. Hmm. And that's the Octomore 13.3 edition. Hmm. Super heavily peated Isla Singapore Scotch from last year. It's the sort of whiskey that if you are not attuned to heavily peated Isla Scotch, you will probably spit it out wow. because it is hard to swallow. If you love that stuff or are willing to take the time to enjoy it, like you'd have to be willing to take the time to enjoy a lot of the classical music in tar, like, you know, Mahler and Holtz and Bach and stuff like that. Once you take the time, you'll find this whiskey is quite excellent hmm. and very, very, very delicious, very deeply built. Like if you can get past the insanely heavy, ashy peatiness where it feels like you're licking the inside of a smoker hmm. that's been going for a week. You do find these lovely layers of dark fruit and leather and vanilla and this lovely floral honey and brininess and like a, a, an olive umaminess. And it's just a phenomenal whiskey. And so I chose it for that dichotomy. Tar, as in Lydia Tar, being that like, I, this, she's too much. I can't take it. But then the classical music side of the film being like, if you embrace it and give it time, I, I assure you, you'll start to love it. Did you like the movie Tar? No. I didn't either. Yeah, well, I... Uh, I'll tell you where I fell I, in it. I gave it a 6 out of 10. And Okay. Yeah. So it D. reminds me of a very particular brand of movie. And you, you mentioned Kubrick. And I have a very love-hate relationship with Kubrick because I feel like in his later sure. years, he was put on such a pedestal that his oh, movies okay. were allowed to be as overindulgent as they wanted to be and no one ever questioned him and in fact it, it, for me it's always been like an emperor's new clothes thing like i just sure. don't see what's there in some of those movies and i think that people just know that they're supposed to revere kubrick and so they do and i think that carries over into today there are certain movies that come out that are very kubrickian and i think of like some of my the, the lesser uh paul thomas anderson movies for me do this. Like, I was yep. not a Phantom Thread guy. I, and I'm also not really a, a, a master guy. I know a lot of people love the master, but this movie reminded me so much of, uh, you know, some of the more pompous scenes in There Will Be Blood, some of the more pompous moments of Phantom Thread, where the length of the movie seemed like a challenge to the audience. Like, can you even get through this? I thought that the movie was probably 40 minutes too long to tell the story that oh, it wanted yeah. to tell. Uh, yeah. I thought that that final joke of the movie was just, I mean, it was vicious and I, I laughed for sure. Um, but it reminded me a lot of there will be blood and the way that that movie ends on this weirdly out of place, out of character kind of joke. So if you're a fan of there will be blood, but you'd like to watch a movie where nothing happens like phantom thread, <laughs> I think that you might be a huge fan of tar. If not, if those movies didn't do it for you. I don't know if Tar is going to be your movie. It's interesting because I would push back a little bit about PTA in that Phantom Thread does have a more universal, albeit very fetishized POV. Mm -hmm. um, also with the Master, I mean, the Master is just Barry Lyndon. I mean, yeah, you know, Lord Bullington getting tortured by Barry Lyndon until, you know, they have their moment at the end. That's literally the master. Yeah. That's Philip Seymour Hoffman torturing you, Joaquin Phoenix. Um, and so I agree with you there. I enjoy Barry Lyndon more than I did the master, but I'm, uh, I get nerdy about the way that film looks. Oh, it's beautiful. It feels it's the beautiful. atmosphere. Yeah. Like you actually feel like you're in those places in a way that is kind of mind blowing to me because it's rarely replicated. Yeah. Um, I feel with Tar, I guess going back to my earlier point, is it's so pigeonholed to such a specific conversation about our culture now that I, it just felt too flash in the pan. Like, mm. I kind of felt like there was a bigger, there was a bigger conversation that was like lurking behind that, that they didn't quite get to. It's like, yeah, we know artists are pieces of shit sometimes, but they create great art. How do we deal with that? Obviously, it's 2022, so cancel culture became the sort of way that's dealt with. And obviously, there's the grooming aspects and, you know, she's a horrible person. Like, 
it's made very clear that she's a horrible person. But it's sort of like, what is the bigger message there mm-hmm. that I think with something like with just taking there will be blood with PTA, like the bigger message there is that, you know, universally, no matter what area you're in, that sort of person and that sort of wealth, that sort of drive is going to destroy everything around you. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what the art is. It doesn't matter what the oil did. It doesn't matter. You know, I kind of feel like with parts, like, well, it emphasized too much on the art and not enough on the person. Right. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, we're pivoting from uh, probably the most pompous of the 10. Uh, man, that and Triangle of Sadness <laughs> to <laughs> the least pretentious movie of the 10. <laughs> we're talking about Top Gun Maverick. Probably my number one film of the year. It's either that or women talking, if you want a truly insane double feature. Uh, Totally agree. Top Gun Maverick was a movie that I saw in the theater and I loved. But I wondered if my love for that movie was a little bit performative. If I was just falling victim to how everyone loved that movie. Because let's be frank here. Some of the dialogue is really bad. Some of the dialogue is, you know, it's it's. (laughs) classic 80s action movie dialogue uh, brought into 2023 so that Tom Cruise can look directly in the camera and tell Ed Harris, I'm not going extinct today. Like it's, it's over the top. It's cheesy. And yet every moment of it works. And I went back to see it a second time and I was still a little iffy on it. And then you know what I did? I saw it a third time in the theater, Zach, because that movie the cinematography, the the incredible cameras that they mounted inside of those airplanes, the oh, entire sorry. last 45 minutes of that film is one of the best edited piece of pieces of cinema I have ever seen. I don't know how much film or I guess digital footage they had to comb through to get all of those shots. I know some of them are assisted with CGI, but It is like a truly staggering work of cinema. It is so tangible that I can brush aside the sort of like action movie trappings of the first half of it because the back half of that movie is like it was like a transcendent experience, man. Absolutely. But I I would add to that. They're self-aware. Oh, yeah. Those trappings. It's not, you know, it's not. People weren't laughing at it because it was dumb. People were laughing with it because they were making the fucking joke. Right, right. And well, so uh, that's why I think it connected. Yeah, I think it did too. And maybe this is an awkward segue because uh, I don't know if people are laughing at or with this whiskey at all. But I'm certainly not because the whiskey that I decided to pair this with comes from probably my favorite current line of whiskeys. And that is the Rebel Distillers Collection. Interesting. I am a huge fan of Rebel I know a lot of people uh, look down on it, and I think it's because it's always competing with Weller in people's minds as a weeded mash bill. You know, the the not so uh, well-kept secret for a long time was that this was being sourced from Heaven Hill. I know that uh, Lux Row, Luxco is making its own distillate now, and so I'm not sure exactly, like, what's in the bottle at this point, I think, is probably still at least somewhat sourced. Uh, however, the Rebel Distillers Collection is... Basically, the the Luxco response to Weller Fullproof. Weller Fullproof, I believe, clocks in at 114 proof always. Uh, Distillers Collection always clocks in at 113 proof. It is uh, 50 times easier to find. It is $40 if you can find it on the shelf. Uh, there's not like a huge secondary market for it. So you can usually even find it on secondary and it's not going to be marked up that much. And it is to me... Every bit as good as Weller Foolproof is, and you don't have to do the legwork to track it down. Uh, so for me, it was just a question of uh, whiskey and a movie that didn't want to be anything more than what they're trying to be. Uh, a movie and a whiskey that remind me of the good old days, Tom Cruise yeah. still living his glory <laughs> days. Uh, I, I love this whiskey and I love this movie, Zach. And you know, it's a perfect, it is perfect in that uh, I've had this whiskey and my biggest takeaway or what I remember most about it is it's like a root beer float. Mm-hmm. And nothing says like diner nostalgia than a root beer float. And so <laughs> it's like I can imagine having a root beer float and watching Top Gun Maverick. Like it just feels right. All right. We've got uh, – I think you've got two left. I've got one left. Let's get to these last three movies. It is the Banshees of Inisherin. 
And uh, I saw this movie in Portland. I was there for work and had an afternoon off. And I was like, ooh, I can actually see this on the big screen. And I vastly enjoyed it because I love I love Gleason and Farrell and just their banter back and forth. Um, you know, I adore Ireland. I've been there over a dozen times. So it was nice seeing it in film. Um, Carrie oh God, Condon. That's Carrie Condon, name. yeah. Yeah, Carrie Condon, it, I thought was fantastic. Oh, she's I mean, incredible. just sort of calling them all to task, you know, and just being like, what the f are you talking about? You're all dull. I love that. <laughs> I love that monologue. Um, you know, and just obviously there's a lot of themes, you know, the Civil War, you know, the stuff on the surface, but also, you know, the only ther access to, you know, therapy or help they have is a priest that comes once a week and there's no one else to talk to. And, you know, the, the hypocrisy of, you know, Gleason going and hanging out at the pub with the worst man on the island and wasting his time drinking with him, but not with his best friend mm -hmm. from, you know, the last, their life and the hypocrisy of, you know, all that. And I, I do like this film, but I also understand the criticisms of Irish people who do not like McDonough or a film like this. Um, so that said, it's kind of got to be a, an Irish whiskey, right? Oh, yeah. Like, how funny would it be if I was just like, Jack Daniels, old number seven. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is where uh, I, I've talked about this with you guys before and how you guys kind of create a nice balance for me because I, you know, through my work, I get sent a lot of stuff and I end up, you know, having a lot of higher end whiskeys that tend to be what I gravitate toward. And I like talking with you guys because, you know, you focus on things people can get and you are, care about the price which is extremely important. And I forget that sometimes. Yeah. And this is an example of me forgetting that sometimes because I chose um, Writer's Tears Redhead. Oh, nice. Which is a nice. fairly newish expression. Like it's not brand new, but it is not been around that long. Um, Writer's Tears always does some, you know, classic stuff. This is a, uh, this is a single malt actually, uh, you know, it rests in Spanish Oloroso Sherry Butts until, you know, it's just right. Um, it's, actually bottled a little bit higher at 46%, which is nice because, you know, 43, 40% is more the jam in Ireland. So this has a little bit more depth to it. And it's just, for me, it tra transports me there where I'm sitting in a pub and you, you know, you smell the pies baking in the back and you, you smell the Guinness and you kind of, you know, you get that old world vibe of, you know, mincemeat pies and, you know, old vanilla cakes mm -hmm. and nut cakes and, you know, you know, English or Irish breakfast tea and, you know, creamy honey and orange marmalade on scones and all this lovely stuff that just takes me to Ireland. And so for me, with this film being so beautifully sort of rendered in the, you know, Irish pastoral countryside, it just felt like the exact right thing. Plus, you know, redhead Gleason made sense. <laughs> Colin Farrell does such incredible eyebrow work in this movie. I feel like Colin Farrell deserves that best actor nomination and, and maybe even the trophy, but his eyebrows yes. deserve to be nominated for best supporting actor because they are, Absolutely. they are incredible in this film. All right. They really are. Uh, the number two movie on this list, I guess it's the number three, but we're going out of order a little bit here is uh, another dark horse. I really do think that even though everything everywhere all at once seems to be the lock at this point. There's a couple movies that could just kind of get a groundswell of support in these last few days of voting. And this is one of them. The Fablemans is one of them. This is yeah. Steven Spielberg's autobiographical uh, telling of his childhood, essentially. You know, it's a it's a slightly fictionalized version. The family's name in this movie obviously is Fableman. It is not Spielberg, but it is Steven Spielberg's story. And what I love about this movie is that despite what the trailers would lead you to believe, this is not a sappy, saccharine look back at the 50s and 60s. This is somebody who is 75 years old, still grappling with his childhood trauma, still grappling with his own response to that, uh, still grappling with his shortcomings as a person and his inability to communicate. And it's really uh, like you can't divorce the Steven Spielberg uh, divorce. You can't divorce the Steven Spielberg <laughs> Uh, divorce origin story from his discovery of cinema because his coping mechanism is to make movies. And he has said it himself. There's a great documentary on HBO Max called Spielberg. And he says in that documentary, 
I never went to therapy because making movies was my therapy. It's it's all through his movies to the point that it's become a running joke on film and whiskey. But there is a moment in this movie where Spielberg, uh, his his, uh, his avatar, Sam, is watching as his parents finally announce that they are going to get a divorce. And he sees his little sister uh, just breaking down and sobbing. And he glances up into the mirror that's hanging on the wall and he sees uh, an imagined version of himself entering the frame, carrying a camera, filming the whole thing. And it's this really tragic and kind of heartbreaking, you know, uh, uh, ponderance on how filmmakers like him and artists in general don't know how to express themselves in any other way but through their art and how it is both uh, rewarding and the most crippling thing about them. There's a scene where he's talking to his sister behind closed doors and she's asking him like, I I can't believe like this isn't affecting you more essentially. And he doesn't know what to say and she gets up to leave and then he just says, will you watch my movie with me? As if that is the only way that he can make contact with her. It is, I mean, I'm selling it like it's a complete downer. It's also not a complete downer. It's a great, great movie and it's told with that classic Spielberg showmanship. Uh, But what I loved about this movie was its ability to balance the really delicate notes with some truly hard hitting and, and hard to swallow moments. And for that reason, I paired it up with one of my favorite bourbons, Noah's mill. Now it's a, it's a polarizing bourbon. It's a polarizing bourbon because it comes from Willett and everything that Willett makes, I feel like is polarizing amongst, you know, amongst the populace here. Uh, But it has that great, I always call it the Willett funk. I think I've come to just accept that Willett has these wonderful rose petal notes for me. I get tons and tons of rose on Willett products and Noah's Mill is probably the one I get it the most on that. That's another one that I think sits right around 114 proof. I love Noah's Mill because it has that high proof, uh, you know, Kentucky hug on the way down, but you never lose that floral note that sits right on top of everything. And I think, you know, if I could pick a whiskey to epitomize that balancing act that Spielberg has, it's Noah's Mill. Absolutely. I mean, great, great whiskey. I love it in Manhattans, uh, mm. but also just on the rocks on its own. It's always, always delivers. And the film was uh, one of my favorite films of the year as well. Another one I could watch again. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of, you know, sort of things people talking about, you know, oh, Paul Dano and Michelle Williams aren't Jewish. Why were they cast? It was like, if you watch the Colbert interview, uh, they put up, or Spielberg puts up a picture of his parents and they look I identical mm-hmm. to his parents mm-hmm. like the louise brooks haircut on his mom mm-hmm. the like sort of dopey tall gangly dad with glasses yeah and it's sort of shocking how much they look alike i mean obviously it's movie stars versions because of course it is but um he told such a touching story that you know he when they were doing rehearsals and going over the script he's like listen i've already been through all my emotions with this when we get on set i'm there to protect you and guide you and don't worry and he said the first day he got on set uh, he saw Paul Dano and Michelle Williams in their full costume and makeup at his parents, and he just broke down sobbing. Mm. And they had to hold him for a while until he was able to calm down and you know start the day. And I think that goes back to sort of what I was alluding to in Tar, what we were talking about with PTA and Kubrick, is it's a universal movie. Mm. Like there's it, it, like yes, some of it takes place in the '60s, but that kind of doesn't matter. Like anti-Semitism is real now. Like mm-hmm. kids are going through that right now and have been for time and turn, you know. And, you know, people find their arts through hardship, but not that bad of hardship. But one of the things I like about the film is like he had supportive parents. Like he was never like, oh, you know, like in uh, what was it? Uh, uh, straight out of Compton where it's like, you know, rap's not going to put any food on the table. What are you <laughs> wasting your time right. with that for? Right. You know, he he had a father who's like, I will move to Los Angeles and change my job so you can follow your dreams yeah. because that's what happened. And, you know, that's, I would argue, good parents do. Right, <laughs> um, right. But, uh, it probably happens more often than not. Uh, and, you know, I've always sort of always kind of pushed away from the idea that art has to be created from pain. Obviously, he went through a huge trauma and has been dealing with that pain. But he also had a lot of support as well. And it's a balance. Everybody has a balance, you know, and some's good, some bad. And he's been able to create 
you know, the most, some of the most iconic films of all time from that. And to see him come full circle with this film, especially as someone who grew up in the eighties with these movies as an iconic cornerstone of my mm-hmm. cultural heritage. I mean, I was crying like 10 times in this movie. I, you know, I was like sitting there in the theater by myself, just sobbing away, shoving popcorn in my yeah, mouth, you know, yeah. like it was, uh, but it, it is another film. Like it's one of those films, like I will probably watch every year. Yeah. You know, at least once. Now I will say this, this, this movie is still no ET, which I have come to acknowledge and accept is maybe my favorite movie and probably one of the 10 best American movies ever made. And I will fight Brad in a cage match to defend the honor of that film. Right. But just to say that it's not E.T. doesn't mean that this is not a great movie. And it's sure. honestly, it's one of Spielberg's best from this century, I would say. Oh, yeah, I, I would I would agree with that as well. You know, what's also interesting is how sure he is in the stories he's telling mm-hmm. that he knows what it's about. He goes in knowing full well what he's there to do. And again, if you go back and watch that Colbert interview, you know, Colbert brings up War of the Worlds in a way. Uh, where he has a incorrect assumption about what that movie's about. And Spielberg's like, no, 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 that movie's about 9-11 yep. and us dealing with the fallout of that. And just moves on. Yep. Because that's what that movie's about. Yeah. Period. Like there's no um, you know, oh, what's the secret meaning of? He's like, no, it's about 9-11. <laughs> and um that's what makes him a great is he knows what he's doing and he's confident in telling that story at that time and it being essential. Uh, and that's what I sort of love about it. Plus, he got an amazing performance out of Seth Rogen, which I thought was impossible. <laughs> all right. We have just one movie left. Zach, it's uh, it's all up to you now. Bring it home, man. Uh, so, surprisingly, not, surprisingly, the almost longest uh, name of any film on the list. <laughs> Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which uh, a lot of people seem to really like. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it's a multiverse film. Uh, but I would argue done in a very intelligent way compared to, I mean, I'm a, I go see all the Marvel movies. I'm not saying they're dumb. I'm just saying this kind of took the idea of a multiverse and had a lot of fun with it, but also brought a lot of emotional depth. I mean, you know, the main character, Evelyn, her, her journey is something, again, I feel like is a universal thing we can relate to where, you know, this doesn't really spoil the film, but, you know, as opposed to not listening to the people around you, making their lives better. Mm-hmm. The people around you in your life will be better. Universal truth. Uh, not always accomplishable. You know, you can't always do that, but sometimes you got to stop and remind yourself that you can. And that's, why I think, why this film connected so well. It also looked great. Let's not deny it. It looks it's flashy. It's got great uh, costume design, great uh, you know, production design. It's acted amazingly well. You know, seeing Short Round come back from my childhood was the most amazing thing out of left field I never expected to see. Um, and I I really hope he gets an Oscar for Best Picture for this. Um, you know, as much as I went all quiet on the Western Front to win, I, I'm fine with that getting Best International yeah. Feature because this is such a, a wonderful cinematic experience mm-hmm. that, again... I don't think anyone thought this was going to be what it was. I think it was just going to be another Daniels movie that was in the art houses. You know, the, the cool film kids would talk about, and that would be it. Instead, it's here, huge hit, critical hit. It's going to win some Oscars. Um, all of that aside, I had to go with where the film starts. It starts at the Lunar New Year when Evelyn's father comes to celebrate. And... This is a bottle that's still on shelves right now because of Lunar New Year, and that's Johnny Walker Chinese New Year, Year of the Rabbit. Mm. Um, I love these bottles because they're hand-painted, and they're always beautiful. Uh, they're hand-painted and designed by a Chinese artist. Um, they look great. They're special. They're unique. They're something you only see once a year. You know, kind of like everything, everywhere all at once, it's very unique um, and looks beautiful. So the, the bottle and the film sort of match us in the, that aesthetic of beauty. And I find Johnny Walker Blue to be a good pour for it. You want to watch a good, fun movie. Because yep. you don't have to think too much about the whiskey. And you can just enjoy the film and get a buzz on. I personally like Johnny Walker Green. That is my go-to if I'm drinking Johnny Walker. That is in no way saying Johnny Walker Blue is bad. It's great. Fine. It's got... 
dead distillery juice in the mix. <laughs> you know, stuff you can't get anywhere else. So it is kind of like traveling to a different universe yeah. where whiskey that doesn't exist anymore is in this bottle or isn't being made anymore, at least. Uh, plus, it's just one of those, I feel like, you know, Johnny Walker Blue is fine, but the, the New Year bottles really are special. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they have... They have something to them that's just that little bit extra, like this film. It's just something to this film that's that little bit extra. Yep. You know, hot dog fingers aside, you know, just go with it, enjoy it, and don't think too much about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's probably the first movie in I don't know how long that has been, A, a genuine crowd pleaser, and B, had this much consensus around it. Like, I just I can't remember another yeah. movie, you know, back in uh, whatever it was, 2018, when Green Book won, no one wanted that movie to win, even though it is a crowd pleasing movie. And so, like, it, it's right. the complete opposite of this film. Was this my favorite movie of the year? No. Like, I, I think I gave it an 8.5 when I first watched it because I thought it was a little too silly for a little too long before sure. the heart of the movie came in. That last act is unimpeachable, man. I have no complaints about the way that movie wraps up. And I have no complaints if this movie wins Best Picture. It's a feel-good movie. It's a movie that you can recommend to people. It is just wacky enough that I can't believe I'm about to see it maybe win Best Picture. Like, when I think about Jamie Lee Curtis and Michelle Yeoh sticking their hot dog fingers into each other's mouths, and then I think this is going to have a (laughs) Blu-ray with a sticker on it that says Academy Award for Best Picture, like, that blows my mind. And I think that I kind of want to live in a world where that happens. And so I'm I'm really excited. If it wins, it wins. And I, it has my full support in that regard. feel like Robert Evans. That's a picture, baby. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, but yeah, I fully, fully agree. And it's the, you know what it reminds me of? Um, and I don't mean this in story or anything like that. Because it is longer, it's the perfect cable movie that you're flipping through the channels mm-hmm. and it's on and you're going to stop and watch the rest yep. of it. Just like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm. Like that is the perfect flipping around film. And if you hit it the right scene, you're in. Yep. But you're never going to watch the whole thing from the start unless you're like a high college student in a dorm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There you have it. Those are the Oscar nominees for 2023. We'd like to know what you think. Hey, how many of these movies have you even seen? How many do you intend to see? And what would be your pick for best picture? You can find us on our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Zach, where can the people find you and find our article? So uh, it will be on uprocks.com. Have a look there. You can also find me there every day writing about whiskey, usually very uh, profusely. You can find me at ZTP Whiskey on Instagram. I'm not on any other socials or go to Uprocks Life on Instagram, but uprocks.com, ZTP Whiskey. All right. We will be back next week with one more bonus episode. And then you're not going to hear from us from a couple more weeks until we promo and preview season seven. So that'll do it for us. And signing off without Brad, I am Bob Book, and we'll see you next time.